Welcome to the Sacred Hoops audiobook. This will be chapter two. And uh, why don't we get into it? But before, let's uh, get our French press here. Press down on it. All right. This is the best, right? Some coffee and reading books. Why don't we begin? Chapter 2. A journey of a thousand miles starts with one breath. For the raindrop, joy is entering the river. Quote by Galib. Okay, so let's get into it. Chapter 2. First I heard a pop. Then I felt searing pain in my shoulder, and I knew I was in trouble. Is this it? I said to myself as I walked off the mound, clutching my arm, is this the last game I'll ever pitch? I had been virtually untouchable, if a tad wild, that summer pitching for the Williston American Legion team, often fanning 15 or more batters a game with my blinding 80 miles an hour fastball. Though I had just completed my freshman year at the University of North Dakota on a basketball scholarship, I still harbored fantasies of becoming a major league pitcher. Now I had torn my shoulder, and the future looked bleak. My brother Joe, who was getting a PhD in psychology at the University of Texas, suggested self-hypnosis to get my rhythm back once the injury had healed. The very idea seemed, seemed like blasphemy because of my fundamentalist religious training. I was weary of giving up my control of my mind, even if it was just for an experiment. But my brother, who has been raised in the same tradition, found a way to break down my resistance. Eventually, my shoulder improved, and the night before my return game, I agreed to let Joe show me some auto-suggestion techniques, which, in my case, involved repeating phrases such as, I will be relaxed, or I won't throw too hard, to reprogram my subconscious. The next day, I pitched one of my best games ever. Normally, I'd try to overpower hitters with my heater, but the more determined I was to blow the ball by a batter, the more reckless I would become, giving up almost as many walks as strikeouts. This time, however, I didn't try to force anything. I focused on the act of throwing the ball and letting the motion naturally flow. Not only did the nagging pain in my shoulder miraculously disappear, but I also experienced something new for me, near-perfect control. This was my introduction to the hidden power of the mind and what I could accomplish if I could turn down the chattering in my head and simply trust my body's innate wisdom. The Battleground of the Mind. Take another sip here. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good coffee. That's uh, intelligentsia coffee. Splurge a little bit now, you know. Uh, <laughs> got the intelligentsia whole bean. Mm. All right. The battleground of the mind. For me, this was a radical idea. It flew in the face of everything I had been taught as a child about the nature of the mind. I was trained to keep my mind busy at all times, filling it with passages from the Bible to prevent evil thoughts from creeping in. When I was four, my mother hung a large brown paper sign in my bedroom with a quotation from John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. From then on, I started being concerned with keeping the faith keeping the faith so that I too could find eternal life. My mother truly believed that an idle mind was the devil's playground. She gave me hundreds of quotations from the King James Bible to memorize to keep me armed and ready for the trials and temptations of life. Words and more words, and they never stopped. My mother Elizabeth is, a passionate, is, passion, is as passionate about spirituality as anyone I've ever met. She got her calling to become an evangelist when she was a teenager living on a small farm in eastern Montana. One day in the late 1920s, a Pentecostal preacher came to town and won her over. As one of six children from a poor family of German Mennonite homesteaders who had emigrated to Montana from Canada during World War I, she found the idea of being saved by Christ very appealing. After finishing high school, she became a country school teacher and then went to Winnipeg Bible College to prepare for her ministry. She traveled all over Montana, spreading the Pentecostal message and forming new congregations. She had a voluminous, voluminous memory and loved to argue theology with anyone foolish enough to take her on. For her, the Bible was, prophet, was a prophetic book, the Word of God, and it predicted the time was running out. The world was headed towards chaos and the Antichrist. It was the midnight hour. My father Charles was a warm and compassionate man with a view of life based on the literal translation of the King James Version of the Bible. Once a runway pickup truck smashed into his car and sent him flying through the window, breaking his arm and putting him in traction for six weeks. The driver of the truck, which was unlicensed, uninsured, and brakeless, was stunned when my father didn't sue. But it didn't surprise any of us. As far as Dad was concerned, litigation was out of the question. It wasn't the Christian thing to do. Dad was a man of God, pure and simple. He did everything by the book and expected me and my brothers Charles and Joe to do the same. When we broke one of his many rules, my father would dis dispense justice swiftly, usually with a razor, razor strap in the cellar of the parsonage. I can remember getting hit only once, and Dad broke into tears while he was doing it. But Joe was not so lucky. He was the rebel of the family. The two of them were always at odds. Once when Joe was 10, he gave my father a Bronx cheer in front of the church after being scolded for some minor indiscretion. Even though he was dressed in a business suit and freshly laundered white shirt, Dad chased Joe down with the rage of Moses, circling this church several times until he caught him. A handful of parishioners looked on, dumbfounded. My father's first wife died from complications during pregnancy with her second child. Not long afterwards, he reconnected with my mother, whom he had met in Bible college, and moved from Ontario with his daughter Joan to get married. He was the first member of the Jackson clan to settle in the United States since the Revolutionary War, when our ancestors who were English loyalists had emigrated to Canada. Together, my parents formed a powerful team working for humble wages at various parishes in Montana and North Dakota. Father was the pastor, making home visitations and delivering sermons on Sundays, while my mother taught Bible classes, played the organ, and gave fire and brimstone talks in the evening. Our lives were dictated by the rhythms of the church life. 
In fact, in my first four years, I actually lived in the basement of a church until the parish could afford a parsonage. Sundays were devoted almost entirely to church activities, and we also had to attend services on Wednesday and Friday evenings. Some weeks we'd spent up to 20 hours in the pews, sitting, trying to sit perfectly under the hawk-like hawk gaze of mom and dad. The rules of our house were strict. We didn't have a TV. We were discouraged from going to movies and listening to rock and roll, not to mention experimenting with smoking, drinking, or sex. The point was not to be just an average Christian, but an exceptional one. So when the end of times came, we would be chosen. We were taught to believe that the apocalyptic vision in the book of Revelations was about to be fulfilled at any minute. And if we weren't prepared, we'd be left out when Christ returned and gathered up his saints. As a little boy, I was terrified of being excluded from the rapture of saints, as it was called, and losing my parents. One day, my mother wasn't home, and I returned from school. I got so frightened the rapture had started without me, I ran all over the town looking for her. I was shaking when I finally tracked her down at a local radio station, taping a religious program with my dad. That fear made me a devoted student of the Bible, and my parents had high hopes that I might someday join the ministry. But in my teens, my faith was shaken. The heart of the Pentecostal religion is being able to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit physically. It involves speaking in tongues, a form of ecstatic, highly emotional discourse that sounds like gibberish to an untrained ear. As a boy, I had seen thousands given, give utterance, as it was called, including my brothers, though I later learned Joe had his doubts about whether his experience was, real, was the real thing. But when my t- turn came, around the age of 12 or 13, nothing happened. It was agonizing. I worked hard for the next two or three years, praying long hours, asking for forgiveness for my sins and tearing, tarrying of the, for the Spirit after services. Still nothing. It began to make me skeptical. Why were some people able to do it so easily while others who were far more diligent, namely me, were left speechless? Were all those people making it up? Was it a manufactured experience? By the time I was 15, I realized that, for whatever reason, it wasn't going to happen for me. I began ducking out early at services. My mother didn't hide her disappointment. Phil, I noticed you skipped the prayer service, she would say. You know you've really got to tarry if you want to find the Holy Spirit. Well, Mom, I don't know if it's for me. Don't say that, Phil. You hurt my spirit when you say things like that. It's for everybody. What could I do? The act of being filled by the Holy Spirit was the central tenet of Pentecostal faith. It was what separated our sect from the other Protestant denominations. I felt like a failure, and yet I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. Was it my sinful nature? If so, I didn't feel like a sinner. Was it my lack of faith? Perhaps, but it was no less committed than my brothers. So, Rather than reject my faith outright, I avoided the issue. I dodged services and started working on my jump shot. My savior, basketball. Right after I take a sip of coffee. Fortunately, I had an outlet for my energy in which success came easily. Basketball. I was 6'6 in high school and would grow to 6'8 in college with square shoulders and arms so long I could sit in the back of a seat of a car and open both front doors at the same time. 
Jeez. My classmates poked fun of my gangling physique and nicknamed me Bones. But I didn't mind because I loved the game. In 1963, my senior year, I led Williston High to the state championship, scoring 48 points in the tournament final. The next thing I knew, I was being hotly pursued by the new coach at the University of North Dakota, Bill Fetch. Fitch. One reason for my early success was my fierce competitive drive, honed over the years by battling two older brothers at everything from checkers to one-on-one hoops. Charles and Joe, six and four years older respectively, made fun of me when I tried to compete with them, and their laughter drove me to try even harder. No doubt I inherited some of that spirit from my mother, who was a basketball player in high school and turned every activity, ironing shirts, playing Scrabble, hiking with her Sunday school class, into an Olympic sport. For me, winning was a matter of life and death. As a kid, I often threw temper tantrums when I lost, especially if I was competing against my brothers. Losing made me feel humiliated and worthless, as if I didn't exist. Once during a high school baseball tournament, I was called in as a reliever and pitched a near-perfect ball for several innings, but I was inconsolable when we lost, even though it was probably my best performance of the year. I just sat in the dugout after the game and wept. My obsession with winning was often my undoing. I would push so hard to succeed when things weren't going my way that it would hurt my performance. That's the lesson I learned after my self-hypnosis session with Joe. I was trying to force my body to cooperate. When it didn't respond, my mind became even more insistent. But on the pitcher's mound that day, I discovered that I could be effective, even overcome pain, by letting go and not thinking. It was an important turning point for me. Though I soon gave baseball, gave up baseball to pursue basketball career, the feeling of freedom I experienced during that game stayed with me and made me curious about finding a way to recreate it consistently. That weekend, Joe also introduced me to Zen Buddhism, which he had been experiencing with one of his professors at the University of Texas. His description of Zen baffled me. How could you have a religion that didn't involve belief in God, or at least a personalized idea of God I was familiar with? What did Zen practitioners do? Joe said they simply clear their minds and be in the present. To someone raised in a Pentecostal household, where attention was focused more on the hereafter than the here and now, this was a mind-boggling concept. Inspired by those discussions, I signed up for a combined major of psychology, philosophy, and religion when I returned to my sophomore year at UND and began to expand my intellectual horizons. Sensing no doubt I could use some worldly wisdom, Coach Bill Fitch had me in the room with Paul Peterson, one of the stars of the team. Peterson had been raised as a Lutheran and had a healthy skepticism about institutionalized religion. He encouraged me to take a detached look at the belief system I had been spoon-fed since childhood and explore life more freely. It was a heady feeling. The 60s were in full swing, and I immersed myself in the counterculture, or at least the version that made its way to North Dakota. I hung out with some rather dissident friends on campus and started catching up on rock and roll, fellaini movies, and other points of contemporary life that I missed out in high school. I began dating my first wife, Maxine, a political science major and a student leader who inspired me to become more active politically. In 1967, my senior year, we got married and had a daughter, Elizabeth. 
What appealed to me most about the 60s and what I carried away with me when it was over was the emphasis on compassion and brotherhood, getting together and loving one another right now, to phrase, to paraphrase the Youngbloods. Many people were on the same path, trying to escape from their parents' archaic views and reinvent the world. I no longer felt so isolated from my peers. For the first time in my life, I wasn't an outsider looking in. My basketball career took off too. Fitch, who later became an NBA coach, was a stern taskmaster who taught me discipline and how to play without fear. I wasn't exactly a selfless player. I had a tendency to try and score every time I got the ball without even looking to see if one of my teammates had a better shot. But that didn't worry Fitch as long as I played selflessly when it really counted, executing his trademark full-court defense. In my junior year, I averaged 21.8 points and, to my surprise, was named to a first-team All-American, along with my future teammates, Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe. That year, North Dakota, which had a lackluster record before Fitch arrived, made it to the NCAA Finals for the second year in a row, and the NBA scouts started to notice me. One of them was my future boss, Jerry Krause, then a scout for the Baltimore Bullets, who wrote that he liked my hook shot and my better-than-average moves inside. New York's Red Holtzman also gave me a favorable report, and after I made the All-American team again as a senior, the Knicks drafted me in the second round. The Holtzman School of Management On my first visit to New York, Holtzman and his wife Selma picked me up at the airport. As we were driving along the expressway into Manhattan, a teenager threw a rock at the car from the overpass and smashed the windshield. Red was furious. I expected him to turn around and chase after the kid. But when he realized that nobody was hurt, he lightened up. Well, that's New York City, Phil, he said, brushing off the incident. If you can take that, you'll just be fine here. Thus began my course in the Holtzman School of Management. Lesson one, don't let anger or heavy objects thrown from overpasses cloud the mind. Holtzman was no Eastern philosopher, but he understood instinctively the importance of awareness in building championship teams. Playing under him, I transformed from a me-first hotshot into a multi-dimensional team player with a deeper understanding of the inner game of basketball. The skills I learned from Red provided the foundation of the selfless approach to teamwork that I would later develop with the Bulls. Red took over as coach of the Knicks in the middle of my rookie year, and it was clear from the first practice what he was looking for. He wanted us to be in tune with each other about what was happening on the court at all times highlighted that. That was true even if you were riding the bench. Once during a timeout at the end of the game, I was goofing around on the sidelines with backup center Nate Bauman when Red suddenly stormed down the floor, stuck his nose in my face, and asked, how much time is left, Jackson? A minute and 28 seconds, I said. No. How much time is left in the 24-second clock? Uh, I don't know. Well, you've got to know because you're going to be going into the game, and if you don't know the time, you could get us in trouble. Don't let me catch you doing that again. And he didn't. Lesson two, awareness is everything. Holtzman was a master on defense. In fact, during the first practice, he was running up and down the floor, applying full court pressure. Red believed that hard-nosed defense not only won big games, but also, more importantly, forced players to develop solidarity as a team. On offense, a great scorer can often dominate a game, and players frequently place their own individual goals of pumping up their scoring average ahead of what's best for the team. But on defense, everybody had the same mission, stopping the enemy. 
and you can't get far trying to do it single-handedly. The Knicks were so loaded with good shooters. Walt Frazier, Bill Bradley, Kazzy Russell, Holtzman didn't concern himself about offense. He let us design our own plays. We had a D play for the Dave Dubichier to set him up for an easy outside shot. And for Bradley, we ran the Princeton Tiger play, which he used in college when he was being second and triple teamed. What was important to Holzman was that we kept the ball moving and not let one or two players get all the shots. As a result, we often had six to eight players in double figures. Lesson three, the power of we is stronger than the power of me. To survive on the Knicks, I had to carve out a new role, role for myself. Coming off the bench, I couldn't be the man anymore, so I focused on improving my defense. Luckily, Holtzman's high-pressure style of defense came easily to me because it resembled Bill Fitch's. That year, on the strength of my defensive play, I was selected to all-rookie team and started fantasizing about breaking into the starting lineup. Then, disaster struck. Midway through my second year, I went up for a turnaround jump shot in Oakland, got bumped by Clyde Lee, and came down hard on my heels, herniating two discs in my vertebrae. The injury required spinal fusion surgery and sidelined me for the season and the next. I had to spend first six months in a back brace. The pain was so excruciating, and many of my standard options for distracting myself were off limits. Basketball was out. Sex was out. Overnight, Action Jackson became Traction Jackson. <laughs> to entertain myself, I began observing th my thoughts and trying to figure out what made my mind click. What I discovered was a mountain of guilt. I felt guilty about my back injury, which could have easily ended my career. I felt guilty about my marriage, which I hadn't shown signs of strain since Maxine and I had moved to New York. I felt guilty about not spending enough time with my daughter, though I still occasionally went to church. I felt guilty about distancing myself from my parents and my spiritual heritage. Why did I put so much pressure on myself? Would I ever be able to escape all those years of Bible school conditioning? Obviously, I wasn't as liberated as I thought. When my injury healed, the Knicks decided to keep me off the roster for the 1969-70 season to protect me from the expansion draft. During that period, Holtzman adopted me as his assistant coach, ex-officio. I practiced with the team, scouting, scouted upcoming opponents, and discussed strategy with Red before and after the games. I learned how to look at the game from a perspective of what the whole team was doing and conceptualize ways to disrupt the opponent's game plan. In short, I began to think like a coach. The nucleus of the Knicks championship team was already formed. Shortly after I was injured, forward Kazzy Russell broke his leg, which cut the roster down to nine players, three of whom were rookies. That meant that the starting five, guards Walt Frazier and Dick Barnett, center Willis Reed, and forwards Bill Bradley and Dave Dubuchier, had, had to average 40 minutes or more per game, an all-out Holtzman-esque pace. To survive, they had to forge themselves into a harmonious, uh, harmonious working unit. All they needed was a stronger bench, what happened in 1969 and 70 when Russell and forward Dave Stallworth returned to the lineup. The team took off early in the season and persevered to win the championship. The Gift of Awareness When I came back the next year, I knew I could no longer be able to rely solely on talent to carry me through. I would have to use my mind more effectively to offset my loss of flexibility and quickness. Ultimately, the key would be to increase my level of awareness. My teacher was Bill Bradley. 
Unlike Debussier, who liked to take it easy in practice, Bradley demanded constant attention. He wasn't that fast, but he had an uncanny sense of court awareness. If your mind wandered for a millisecond, he'd vanish into thin air, then reappear on the other side of the court with a wide open shot. Covering him in practice showed me just how weak my powers of concentration were. I had been a center in college and by instinct focusing on the ball and protecting the basket, but Bradley was such a great player off the ball, I had to learn how to attach myself to him without being distracted and losing track of what was happening on the rest of the floor. To train myself, I had to be relaxed and fully alert. I began practicing visualization. I would sit quietly for 15 or 20 minutes before the game in a secluded part of the stadium. My favorite place was the New York Rangers locker room and create a moving picture in my mind of what was about to happen. I'd call up images of the man I was going to cover and visualize myself stopping his moves. That was the first part. The next step, which is much harder, was to lay back and not try to force the action once the game started, but allowing it to unfold naturally. Playing basketball isn't a linear thought process. Okay, when Joe Blow takes this funny drop step over there, I'm going to jump in and do my Bill Russell in, in imitation. No, the idea was to code the image of a successful move into my visual memory so that when a similar situation emerged in the game, it would seem, to paraphrase Yogi Berra, like deja vu all over again. A turning point came in the fifth game of the 1971-72 playoffs in Boston. Bradley had been having trouble guarding Celtics crafty Don Nelson, so Holtzman put me in on him. One of Nelson's tricks was to load up his fingers with pine tar resin so that the ball would stick to his fingers when he faked a shot. This was maddening for me because I had a quick trigger for blocking shots. To beat him, I had to pick the move apart in my head step by step, then try to remain clear-headed so that when he finally made his move, I would recognize the moment and do what I had to do. It worked. The first time Nelson tried to fake me out of the game, I didn't get tense or overreact because I knew what was going to happen. That clarity allowed me to stick with him and throw him off his game, creating some important scoring opportunities for us that helped seal the victory. We beat Boston in that series 4-1, but without Willis Reed, who was recovering from knee surgery, we weren't able to get past Wilt Chamberlain and the Lakers in the finals. All of that changed the following year. When Reed returned, and the addition of center forward Jerry Lucas and guards Earl Monroe and Dean Memminger gave us the most versatile attack in the NBA. The critical point in the playoffs came in the seventh game of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, again in the Boston Garden. During a film session the night before, Holtzman pointed out that the Celtics were disrupting our full-court press by having their forward set picks up court against the slight 6-1 Memminger. You've got to get through those picks, Dean, said Red. I can't. They're too big, replied Memminger. I can't is no excuse. Get through the picks. The next day, Memminger was relentless, breaking picks containing JoJo White and scoring 26 points as we abolished the myth of the Celtics' invulnerability in the Garden. Before that day, they had never lost a seventh playoff game on their home floor. After that series, the finals against LA seemed anticlimactic. Chamberlain was ineffective and we flew past the Lakers in five games to clinch the title. The post-game festivities in L.A. were exhilarating. 
This was the pinnacle of my sports career to that point. The moment I have been striving for with all my heart since I was a kid. And yet two days later, when we gathered again in New York for a celebration with family and friends at Tavern on the Green, suddenly the thrill was gone. The room was crowded with celebrities. Robert Redford held court in one corner, Dustin Hoffman in another. But the intense feeling of connection with my teammates I had experienced in LA seemed like a distant memory. Instead of being overwhelmed with joy, I felt empty and confused. Was this it? I kept saying to myself, is this what I was supposed to be doing to bring me happiness? Clearly the answer lies somewhere else. Chapter two concluded.